Podcast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Bietman. This episode of the PowerCast is brought to you by Audible.com. Download a free audiobook of your choice today at audiblepodcast.com slash PowerCast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash PowerCast. And now, on with the show. Just got off the phone with someone I've known for 10 or 15 years. And he was telling me, first suggesting maybe he'd like to come on the show. And I said, okay, well, what is your deal? Now, he has a peripheral connection or direct connection to show business. So, obviously, I would consider him qualified to at least talk about something. But whether he knows anything about the paranormal, I wondered. And he said to me, and I'm not going to mention his name, it's about my wife. As long as I've known her, strange things have happened to her. Hmm. So she's some kind of a magnet for activity, or she's psychic, or what? what's the deal? I get the impression that she is psychic. And he said his first intimation of this was when they were walking down the aisle. Now, to basically look at the meta view of this, a lot of people have things happen in their lives, but they don't want to talk about it because of embarrassment or whatever. And we see this all the time in our forums. You know, we have the PowerCast community forums. And it's very simple to find. It's thepowercast.com slash forum. You know, easy enough. Yeah. Yeah. We sure. made it as easy as possible. We made it easier than ever to get to. And several times a week, someone comes in brand new to the form. Maybe they heard the show a couple of times. I got to tell you what happened to me. I'm not sure whether I should be talking about this or not, but mm-hmm. take a listen, take a look and tell me what you think. It's hard to talk about this stuff. You know, when we had when we had that show with Don, I mentioned that it's, uh, you know, I, I'm still feeling comfortable talking about a lot of this stuff. And. For people who don't normally talk to other people about these topics, you have something odd happen. I think the default position, Gene, is to just bury it, you know, bottle it up. And it kind of indicates that there's so much more activity going on than what we hear about. I mean, in my own personal experiences, I, I know this to be true. I mean, this stuff going on in other countries that because of language barriers, we, we never hear about this stuff. And, and it, you know, to take that away... All of these people having personal experiences that they don't know how to categorize, they don't know how to understand, they get frightened by this stuff, and so they they just bottle it up. I mean, there's so much of that going on. I'm not surprised at all, I have to tell you. Well, I should mention, of course, the fact that there are people also, like me, who have never had anything unusual happen, or they're in the periphery of something, you know, people they know something happens to, or maybe they have a few bad dreams. That's about it. And they're hooked into the subject as it just because we're curious. Well, sure. Because maybe there is that experience that's bottled up somewhere that we're afraid to confront, or maybe we heard something from somebody when we were very young and we have to know the answer. We have to figure out what's going on. What draws us to it? Number one, Is it because in the end, maybe we did have the experience and don't recall it? You know, I'm not saying that if they hypnotized me tomorrow, they wouldn't find a barrel of jumbled memories from some kind of crazed lunatic. Because, of course, I tell everybody, you want to know the truth? I'm a crazed lunatic. (laughs) Well, (laughs) you're being a crazed lunatic or not aside. I think, obviously, people are interested in this stuff because it's... A mystery. People love a mystery. You know, my mother, she used to love to read mystery novels. I could never understand. I mean, she was addicted to these things. And I'm not surprised, ultimately, because people love the unknown. 
I think there's been research about this gene and the whole part of the human brain and the psyche that sort of requires mystical experience in order to, I guess, to, to some extent, to define what we are and what we aren't. I mean, human beings are categorization robots, machines, computers, call us what you will. But you look around at the world, the complexity of reality I think anybody who's not compelled to be fascinated by that has got a problem. I mean, the stuff we talk about on the Paracast, and I know that we get typecast into being uh, the gatekeepers of ufology, but you know, we've talked about a lot of different topics on this show, and all of these topics, they're interesting. I mean, it, it's to me, it's amazing when people get caught up in things like sports. You know, they get into the minutia of statistics and... Uh, the players' personal lives and all this other stuff, and I think to myself, really, you're you're really interested in, in in that stuff. You're you're fascinated by a guy who hits a ball with a stick. I, I find that to be paranormal. I just don't get it, and and that's my well, own paranoid, depending on your point of view. Now, I understand this because no. my father was intensely interested in sports. My late brother was. My brother-in-law, Steve, used to be in the business where he sold sports collectibles, not because he was making a lot of money at the time, which he was, by the way. It was because he had an abiding interest in sports. I do remember, by the way, I was very young, walking with my brother to Ebbets Field in Brooklyn to see the Brooklyn Dodgers. So now you know how old I am, and that's all you're going to hear about that. Speaking of old, though, you know, we talk about reluctance of people to talk about their interest in the subject. And we've got a guy who's coming on in a few minutes. I've known him for probably 35 years. His name is sure. Kurt Southerly. And when I first met Kurt, he was in the Air Force space, an enlisted man in the Air Force. Now think about that. Guy writing to me about UFOs in the Air Force. I wondered every so often, were they reading his letters? Thinking this guy is either a crazed lunatic, he's spreading the word, or they don't care. And maybe we're going to have to ask Kurt subtly how he got interested, what drew him to the subject, and maybe we'll have some surprises that I don't even remember. Maybe he told me something 35 years ago that I have to ask him again to recall. You know, there are incriminating photographs. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, the oh, incriminating yeah. photographs will show that I have no taste for clothing, whatever. Plaid pants, man. That's oh, right. Boy. I had long hair, no taste for clothing, which my wife-to-be would tell me over and over again. You know, she said, you know, you seem like a nice guy and you seem to be in good physical shape, but the taste for clothing, forget about it. Let's not forget that coming up next on the PowerCast, my old friend, Kurt Southerly, who's not as old as I am. <laughs> Amazing. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Hey, neighbors. As we said, this episode of the PowerCast is being brought to you by Audible.com, and you can download a free audiobook of your choice. And you can select from over 40,000 audiobooks and lots, lots more featuring bestsellers about the paranormal, about UFOs, novels. You pick it, and when you get the book that you want, just download to your Apple iPod or over 400 other devices. All right? You can download your free audiobook today, today at audiblepodcast.com slash powercast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash powercast. This offer only good for USA listeners. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to 
news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and David. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Hey there, neighbors. Today I have a very special free promotion. The manufacturer is giving our listeners a free full month supply of beta prostate to all new customers. You know, guys, your prostate can affect your quality of life. And studies show that prostate problems affect a larger majority of men. Listen, guys, your prostate can affect your urine flow and stream, and it might even affect intimacy. Every man over 30 should visit the doctor for a checkup and take what I take, beta prostate. It's so powerful, you have to take 100 saw palmetto capsules in order to get the same natural plant sterols as one beta prostate. This all-natural supplement targets the prostate and provides it with nutrients that help support proper prostate function. Call now because all new customers get beta prostate free by calling 1-800-625-5535. Just pay for the shipping and handling. The bottle is free. Once again, call right now, 1-800-625-5535. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. have him Kurt Southerly and here's what I remember about Kurt I was thinking about the other night this shows you where my head is at which is probably in the clouds somewhere I remember getting a letter from you you were in the Air Force Base reading a publication I had on UFOs and I sort of wondered at the time were they reading those letters when you sent them out you mean were they scrutinizing my outbound mail you talking about the Air Force they they wouldn't have done anything like that not a chance oh sure they would are you being facetious (laughs) i mean wait a minute in the movies they do that all the time you're telling me that movies aren't reality what well i thought that will smith was an officer or something you know he's uh, not an officer he he was also a man in black and that didn't make any sense either Oh, oh boy that's that's getting a little. We're getting a little iffy there. Um, yeah. Oh man! I'm talking about his his. Well, uh, think of it this way: about shoulders. the conspiracy theory. His friend in the movie, the guy he works with, is played by Tommy Lee Jones, right? That's correct. Tommy Lee Jones was the college roommate for Al Gore. What? Serious? Oh, really? Who is Al Gore's best that. friend and college roommate? Yeah, I, I do believe I had Tommy Lee Jones. Before. I'm serious. Yeah. So what are you suggesting, that Al Gore is the man in black? Mm-hmm. Hey, you know. <laughs> well, now, I, I can, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see your hand and raise you. One of my closest friends, old buddy of mine, his college roommate was uh, Paul Rubens, a.k.a. Pee Wee Herman. So, I mean, just we're going to play that this card game. Yeah, but we're talking about sane people here. 
not drug crazed <laughs> lunatics. No, whoa, hey, hey, Paul Rubens is a great man. What are you talking about? What okay. a great guy. I, no, I, I've had the pleasure of hanging out with Rubens for many hours, and he's a very nice man. He's not a, a drug crazed lunatic, Paul Rubens. Are you insane? I thought that's what he was. No, he's, he's an incredibly cool guy. What are you talking about? Sorry oh, about man. that, Paul. Yeah, no, you so should Ruben apologize. Was not like, Ruben was not like the people that Gene hung out with, you no. know, back in his early days. Or yeah. you. And, and and there are pictures in a book. I've got this book in front of me, UFO Mysteries. A reporter sees the truth. And in this book, there are some fascinating things, including some really great photos. <laughs> yeah, back in those days, we wore strange-looking clothes. Of course, I also had long hair back in those days, and I don't have much hair at all. <laughs> Well, yeah, the plaid pants thing. I mean, I, I think it's still sort of popular in certain parts of Southern Florida. It's, uh, oh, boy. Yeah, no, I there's the, uh, some of the inbred communities America. in Alaska. All right. Well, let's get to the interview here, guys. Okay, seriously other- speaking. Okay, let's try to be serious. Kurt, did you once say something to me, and this may be something that, I remember, or is a misremembered, if we want to be serious about this. Going back that 35 years, we get together, and one day you tell me one of the reasons, one of the reasons, not all the reasons, you joined the Air Force was in the hope of maybe finding out some UFO-related information. Am I remembering this correctly? Uh, You you are remembering it uh, correctly. I I think... You know, at the time that I signed up for the Air Force, I was 17. I wasn't yet 18. And when I shipped out, I had just turned 18. And in my rather youthful state of mind, my rather, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, how should we say, uh, naive state of mind at that time, I actually thought that by joining the Air Force, I might actually find out something about what was going on. Of course, back then, like most everybody else, I believed that we were dealing with a nuts and bolts phenomenon, something that, you know, real real spacecraft piloted by real aliens who were coming down here and conducting surveillance over the, the planet, and that the Air Force was engaged in some sort of a uh, high-tech battle to prevent this from happening, and that the government was, of course, covering the, covering all the truth about this. And uh, after four years in the Air Force, I kind of decided that, well, I'm not going to learn anything here. And even if there is anything to learn, which I was not too sure about by the end of those four years. Of course, at that point, I had I'd finally met John Keel and uh, was on the verge of meeting Ivan Sanderson and some of the, the other luminaries of the, of the day. And I was starting to think a whole lot differently about the UFO phenomenon. Okay, so you started out, you were the ETH guy. You go in the military, and I guess you could have been the junior Donald Kehoe. Here's the way it works. ET's coming here. The government knows about it. We deserve to know the truth because we are loyal Americans. And you learn there's maybe a little bit more to it. Where did the change begin? I think the change began about around 1969 or 1970, about halfway into my four-year tour with the Air Force. That's when I started reading the magazine pieces that Keel was writing at the time, and Sanderson, of course, was was writing quite a lot on the subject. And there were Jerry Clark and Lauren Coleman were starting to put out pieces. Lou Farish, I mean, all of these people were ready to, you know. Put Who is Lou Farish? There. Tell our listeners because we know Jerry Clark because he's been on the show. We know Lauren Coleman, he's been on the show. We certainly know John Keel. And now we're Lou learning Farish. a little bit about Kurt Southerly, but who was Lucius Farish? 
Lucius Farish is the guy that we gave the Lebanon baloney to some years ago. <laughs> yes, I remember. <laughs> the what? <laughs> the, the say what? Farish is a guy that lives in Plummerville, Arkansas. And it's a, a town in the middle of nowhere. It's not even really a town. Up until recently, was putting out the uh, UFO news clipping service. He was a very, back in the late 60s, early 70s, he was a prolific magazine writer on the UFO subject, also on other types of paranormal phenomena. Uh, he and I corresponded heavily. We were actually had become very close friends for quite a while. And it was, it was a, no, when the weekend went by that Lou and I didn't exchange letters. And this is, of course, way before email. Anyway, I, Gene and I met him when we went to, uh, I guess it was the first, what they called it the International UFO Conference. It was in Fort Smith, Arkansas. That was, what, about 72, 73? And uh, we, we drove down there, and, we, and I, I guess in one of the letters that I had been, ex- or in the letters that I had been exchanging with Lou, I was kidding him about Lebanon bologna, which is this locally produced product, which, you, you know, it's, you slice it up and put it in a sandwiches, or you can buy the whole bologna, which it can be like two or three feet long. This is the Pennsylvania equivalent of spam. Exactly. Okay. So we, we took him a log of this Lebanon bologna with, <laughs> and he loved it. <laughs> I remember I got a letter from him you know, uh, maybe six or seven months later and he, he wrote and he says the baloney is all gone <laughs> <laughs> and your response to him that's baloney uh, <laughs> I don't think I ever had a response for that I, think I, just, I just laughed so hard when I got that letter I think that's all that was in it <laughs> speaking of which by the way what is Lucius doing these days I honestly don't know uh, I wasn't even aware until maybe three or four months ago that he had ceased putting out the news news clipping service. And I'm not telling you the truth, I'm not even sure who puts it out because I I stopped getting it uh, a number of years ago. It was it, it just in clippings that were in it were a lot of it was translated from South American stories. I think Scott Corrales, who's a uh, Spanish researcher living up in upstate Pennsylvania. Matter of fact, when David started talking all in Spanish to you when we first started the show, he said, Pennsylvania, Scott Corrales, he's been on the show. He's a friend of the show, too. So he got yeah. that confused. Sorry about that, David. I know That's on right. Fridays you tend to be a little bit more forgetful about such things. He'll be talking to me in Hebrew soon. It's ridiculous. Do you, do you think any of your listeners are going to have any clues to what we're talking about here? Anilo Anilo we're talking about the early UFO field, about how our various belief systems were altered. And I think we all kind of went through this period where John Keel was God or something, where his ultra-terrestrials, they had to be the solution. So, okay, so from the ETH, and let's kind of maybe spread this out here and maybe be more specific, Kurt. From the ETH to something a little bit more complicated, You read the stuff from Ivan T. Sanderson, John Keel, all this stuff. What clicked in your mind? Well, it it suddenly became pretty obvious that there was a whole lot more going on than just the idea of an extraterrestrial phenomenon, the ETH, the extraterrestrial hypothesis. The more I I read Keel's pieces, the the early pieces of of Lauren and Jerry Ivan's stuff, all of this, even even some of the stuff that Brad Steiger was putting out at the time, you know, it just seemed like, whoa, you know, I'm I'm taking a look at this. I'm thinking that my perspective, my, my view of all of this had been extremely narrow. You know, I had read, as you said, read the early Don Quixote stuff, and 
and the the various authors who were putting out nothing but ETH literature, you know, basically saying that this that the UFO phenomenon has to be spacecraft. And of course, you know, looking back on back to the days of, of Ken Arnold back in 1947, when all of this kind of really began in the modern UFO era, that was the thinking down all down through those years that this is. This is an extraterrestrial phenomenon. At first, they were saying maybe interplanetary. Then, as they expanded their view, they were saying maybe interstellar, or you know, or whatever. And and then there were a few people that kind of were saying, well, maybe this thing's interdimensional. Maybe these things are popping in and out from different, you know, planes of existence. But Keel kind of he he sort of moved a little bit in that direction. And I think, if I remember correctly, I think Keel came at it from the, the perspective or from the direction of a journalist. And at the same time, you know, Jacques Vallée, the French astrophysicist who ended up moving to this country, he was researching all of this and he was approaching it from the perspective of a scientist, a mathematician. And they both came out with books around the same time. Keel's book, his, his, it was his, I guess, magnum opus, his uh, Operation Trojan Horse. Vallée came out with Passport to Magonia. And Magonia being a, a, a mythical place in French mythology from which strange things come and go. And uh, so he kind of used that in the title. And basically what Bollet uh, was saying after doing heavy research was that we're dealing with a phenomenon that is not extraterrestrial. It's something that goes back into antiquity that the, the little aliens of today were previously we folk who were doing strange things, actually abducting individuals, and before that they were the old gods, and beyond that, who knows what. And Keel kind of approached it from the same way, except he kind of went off on a, on a much more stern, much more intense tangent where he, he conjured up this idea of these ultra-terrestrials, these ex other dimensional beings who were coming here and basically screwing with our heads. Some were reading all of this, and, I, and I'm not the only one at the time. I know, I think, Gene, you, you kind of were starting to, to think along those lines. Jim Mosley, Lauren, uh, and uh, and Jerry, you know, although Jerry would probably deny it today. That's all another of, story I want to get into in a few minutes. Yes, go ahead. Yeah. But all of all of these people were kind of suddenly looking at this thing, and as, as you mentioned earlier, we were all kind of looking at John Keel as sort of a god. It's like, wow, this guy's onto something. And that carried on for quite a few years. And I know Ivan Sanderson kind of adhered to that point of view too right up until the time of his death that we're dealing with something that is much more complicated much more bizarre than mere extraterrestrials and in fact i, I think keel actually made made a, 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 a he joked one time when i was talking to him we were over at the uh, at the old headquarters of the society for the investigation and I explained ivan's old old place over in columbia new jersey and he was he was made a, a comment about if aliens actually landed and took a serious look at this planet, you know, we, they'd, they'd be like, whoa, this, this place is really strange, you know, because there'd be things going on here that they wouldn't be able to comprehend. It was kind of what he insinuated. So anyway, that was, that was where I was for a long time. Then I kind of drifted away from it for about 10 years. And I got com pretty much got completely out of it. I was, of course, working as a newspaper reporter at the time, and I got really deeply involved into wildlife and natural history. I was writing an outdoor column for the paper that I worked for. The unexplained phenomena was the furthest thing from my mind. And then somebody named Steinberg called me up one day and, and started asking me questions about uh, about Roswell, New Mexico, and the MJ-12 documents, which I had n not heard about at all. Uh, that's how divorced I was from all of this. And then I think you kind of kicking and screaming drug me back into this. <laughs> yes, I dragged myself kicking and screaming, and I figured I ought to have some victims. 
you know, I couldn't do this all by myself. I had to find some worthy victims, and I said, ah, I haven't talked to Kurt for a long time. What's he up to? Yeah, that was back, uh, was it the early, mid-'80s, I guess, when we you know, kind of started taking a look at all of this stuff again. And, of course, the, the whole Roswell MJ-12 document thing was had reached a zenith. And uh, yeah, didn't big verbal battles going on between God? Who all was it? Uh, well, Stan Friedman. Stan Friedman. Yeah, Stan Friedman was one of them. Uh, uh, Kevin Randall. All of these guys were suddenly involved in this whole MJ12 document thing. Were they were they legitimate documents? Weren't they legitimate documents? And of course, I sat down and did at your request and kind of took a look at all the. I think at one point you had sent me a, literally a, a crate load of documents. And I waded through all of this and used what I learned about bona fide journalism at that point to kind of try to weigh the pros and cons of all of this and ended up drafting that magazine article, which you ran later in Caveat Emptor. People should know this was a small magazine I had originally during the late 60s and early 70s. It folded when my first marriage folded, and then I brought it back for another three years. And that folded. Well, I'll tell you the story very quickly how that folded. Okay, maybe people don't know. I have this magazine on the paranormal. I go to, and this is true, I go to one of those lectures that are being sponsored by Tim Beckley and John Keel in New York, featuring none other than Whitley Strieber, okay? And Whitley said towards the end of the session, in response to a question from someone in the audience, he says, the government started probing into my activities. I suffer from a very intense government audit of my taxes. Not a month later, what happened to me? An intense government audit of our taxes due to something that my brother, who was the financial services industry at the time, had manipulated, but it really cost me a lot, and I just had to give up all my activities, but just my regular job and focus on this stuff. And that's what happened. You know, synchronicity. Strieber said it, a month later it happened to me. And that's how the magazine ended. And now we're back. A hundred years later. Yeah. I, I got a question, guys, because, Kurt, you know, when you're talking about this and you, you mentioned, you know, starting with one specific orientation and trying to decipher this mystery and then you, you end up going off in another direction. Um, is there anything is there anything that potentially suggests to you that we're dealing with something that doesn't is not a single source thing. I mean, I, I, people talk about the, the ETH versus interdimensional versus uh, fill in the blank, and it seems to me like there's a good possibility that we're talking about simultaneous phenomena. You know, you've got some craft visiting potentially from other star systems. You have some things going on that could be part of the ecosystem on this planet that we don't know about. You, you, you know, people talk about interdimensional travel or, you know, interdimensional creatures. And, and I've mentioned this on the show before. It's always seemed to me that if you find a way to travel between distant star systems, it, it would almost imply that you had figured out a way to bend space-time. So is it that the researchers that look into the stuff, people like Stan Freeman, pick one specific theory and stick with it just because of uh, a researcher's uh, sort of focus? I mean, I was going to say tunnel vision. I don't want to say that because that sounds derogatory, and we respect what Stan Freeman has done. But do you think that's just a human tendency? Yeah, I think I think it is a, a tendency to a certain extent, and it, you have to develop a certain mindset that allows you to to try to approach this logically 
with kind of a, 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 an even-handed point of view. Uh, some of these people, and and I, you know, I met Stan. I've talked to him at some length, Stan Friedman, and he's a great guy. But he he has built his entire reputation around the idea that we're dealing with aliens, visiting aliens and that there is some sort of a government conspiracy or there's a cover-up, maybe a global cover-up, to prevent the rest of us from realizing that this is actually happening. When somebody does this, when a guy like Stan takes this approach, he, he digs a hole for himself, and it's pretty hard to extract yourself from that hole. You can't, after, after decades of pursuing this one notion and doing everything you can to back it up with documentation, lecturing on it endlessly, it's pretty impossible for the guy to suddenly stop and say, you know what, after 30 or 40 years or however long it's been, 50 years, I'm wrong. You know, that brings us to another important aspect here, Kurt, and that is the MJ-12 documents. Now, one of our regulars on the show is Robert Hastings, author of UFOs and Nukes. And Robert is very much convinced that even the subset of MJ-12 documents that are accepted by Stanton Friedman are also hoaxes. And the question you have to wonder is, after all these years, after staking his reputation on these documents being authentic, having something to do with them, having something to do with the UFO mystery and his studies in Roswell, if he were to admit, well, you know what, after studying this all these years, and he's now 74 years old, I will now admit that I don't believe it anymore. He won't come out and say that, and I think there's reason for him to say that. Honestly, I think there's enough reason for him to say it, but I don't think he will, whether it was true or not. Well, again, it's a, it's a certain tendency toward human stubbornness. I mean, this is, this has been his life for the last how many years, you know, how many decades, even though he might benefit by saying, you know, all right, the documents are, are, are phony, or at least a portion of the documents are phony, and I'm finally going to be smart enough to come out and publicly admit that. I don't think he's going to do it. I don't think he he is even thinking about doing anything like that. It would be uh, almost impossible, I think. Business travel is a profitability killer, you know that. So do more and travel less with GoToMeeting, the easiest, most affordable online meeting service. With just a click, launch sales presentations, training sessions, product demos, or collaborative sessions right from your desk. GoToMeeting is so easy to set up and use, you'll have your first meeting running in seconds. Plus, hold as many meetings as you want for one flat rate. Free VOIP and phone conferencing included. Try GoToMeeting free for 45 days. For this special offer, you must visit www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts. That's www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. This is Leslie Kane, and I'm with the Coalition for Freedom of Information, and you are listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. 
we have my good buddy, Kurt Southerly. He's author of a few UFO books, including UFO Mysteries, A Reporter Seeks the Truth. Now, you don't have too many copies left at Amazon, but we've left a link on our site to get that copy. And if they run out, we're sure his publisher, Llewellyn, will go back to the printing presses and send out some more. Right? Well, well just as an aside, Kurt, before you answer, people should know that there are at least two chapters of your book on Google Books. Llewellyn has put up a preview, and there are at least two. There might actually be like three chapters of the book online that people can read. And so I read those chapters, they'll say, thank God I didn't buy this book. No, it's a really <laughs> uh, – no, it's actually – I've read the book. It's a really good book. And, and like I, I said before, there are some really funny pictures in there that if you're a Paracast fan, for, it's, it's a, enough of a reason to, uh, to get the book. Now, in fact, now the thing is, I want to just say this before you go on, David. I am wearing the same clothing. Oh, I might believe that. <laughs> Dave just want people to buy this book so they can see how much hair we had in, in, in the strange bell-bottom pants we wore back in those days. <laughs> to well, see how absurd we look. Plaid bell-bottom pants. Yeah, no, the plaid <laughs> pants thing is... Uh, no, but, well, and I think this is one of the chapters that's on Google Books, is your whole interaction with Kenneth Arnold. Now, you, you had access to him in a kind of a, an, a unique way. And I, I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. And I think you were actually involved in this indirectly. Uh, there was a point early in my research that I, I just got, and I read Arnold's book, the one that he published through Fade Magazine, The Coming of the Saucers. And I was really intrigued by the whole business of, of the, the whole uh, story about him going to Mari Island in the wake of his 1947 UFO sighting. He, he was essentially hired by Fate Magazine, I guess that was uh, Ray Palmer at the time. Palmer sent him to Maury Island because there had been a story. Uh, he had received a, a letter from a couple of guys, Fred Lee Christman and Harold Dahl. Claiming oh, God. That, and Fred Lee Christman's another story we can tell later, but go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, these two guys had sent a letter to, to Palmer saying that they had had an incident involving flying discs, donut-shaped discs that dropped some sort of lava or slag-like material all over Puget Sound, where the boat was, if some of it hit the boat, I guess it um, allegedly the the material hit the boys. If Harold Dahl's boy was on on board the boat, uh, I guess the boy was supposedly injured. The dog was hit and killed. The stuff fell all over the boat, fell onto uh, a small island nearby, or a, a, I guess a peninsula sticking out in the water, and they recovered pieces of it. But anyway, to make a long story short, this this all happened, and, and Arnold Ken Arnold was hired to fly out to Tacoma, Washington, to investigate this. So he, he flew out there and got into a real, a real situation, a real bizarre situation. He, when he, he was a private pilot. He landed his aircraft at a small runway, a uh, small dirt strip outside of town. Uh, back in those days, he didn't have to make file a flight plan, so he just flew out there, and his wife, Ray Palmer, and I think one or two of his real close friends were the only ones who knew he was going. He, he got there, he, tele, he used the airport telephone to call into the city to try to find a room, and there was some sort of a convention going on in the, in the city, and he phoned all over the place, and there was nothing available, everything was booked. So finally he called, I think it was the Windsor Hotel, which was the largest hotel in the city, and they had a room reserved under Ken Arnold's name. 
Now he's like, well, he told the, the clerk, he said, this must be another Ken Arnold. And the guy said, well, be those in May, it's yours. So he took the room, <laughs> drove into town, got himself set up, interviewed these two guys. Things just seemed a little strange. Later he found out, I'm making, again, I'm shortening a long story. He found out that every conversation that he had in the room with these individuals and also an airline pilot named uh, E.J. Smith, who was a friend of Arnold's who came in later when Arnold felt he was getting out of his depth with the investigation. And by the way, Captain E.J. Smith was an airline pilot who also saw a UFO in a very important Exactly. Segment. Yeah, that was like a week after Arnold saw his in June of, of 1947. I think it was like July 3rd or July 4th when Smith and his co-pilot and some of the services working on the airliner and passengers, I guess, saw a formation of flying objects. Very similar to what Arnold had reported. But anyway, they were all there, there they are all in Tacoma, Washington. And he gets a phone call from a reporter in the city, the name eludes me at the moment, but the reporter is basically saying, hey, you know, everything that you're talking about in, in your room is being reported to us for almost verbatim by a mystery informant. So Smith and Arnold tear the room apart looking for bugging devices. They didn't find any. He kind of panics. He calls a couple of Army Air Force officers who had he interviewed him previously after following his sighting. And they had given him a business card and said, if you ever need to talk to us or want to contact us, just call this number. So these two guys showed up. They flew in in a, uh, I think it was a B-29 bomber. They, they flew into the, uh, the Tacoma airport, came in, interviewed Dahl, interviewed Chrisman, took some of these samples that the guys had, had collected out and had supposedly collected out in uh, the Puget Sound, these uh, lava-like samples took these back to their airplane, their, their craft took off. There was an engine fire a short time later and the plane crashed and the only person that survived was a, a crew chief, an enlisted man who parachuted to safety. The two Army Air Corps officers who were on board died. The whole thing just got really, really spooky at that point when another reporter, Lance something, I can't remember his last name, he got a hold of Arnold shortly thereafter and he said basically, you, you know, you need to get out of town. Things are really getting out of hand. You know, I feel like your life's in danger. Smith left. Arnold went back to the little airport, got in his plane, was taking off, and his engine seized up as he was taking off. And he mm. managed to land it successfully without damage. And uh, I guess there was dirt in the engine or something. It, maybe it was coincidence, but maybe not. Well, by the way, we have to remember here, folks, Kenneth Arnold saw nine disc-shaped objects in the state of Washington, June 24th, 1947, described them as like saucers skipping across water. One reporter said, flying saucers, the rest was history. So he's the guy, the pioneer, and he's involved yep. in this case. Just yeah. a r real quick before you guys continue, I'm looking at the book right now. Um, the second reporter was uh, uh, with the Times. Uh, Paul Lance was his name. Paul Lance. And the, uh, right. Paul Lance. And the uh, UP reporter was Ted Morello. Ted Morello. And Lance, if I recall correctly, Lance died shortly after all of this himself. He was a, some sort of a car accident. Morello went through a whole suite uh, of personal problems. He lost his job because his wife left him. It has seemed to have happened with so many UFO investigators years later. The guy's life just went to hell. And now, uh, yes, 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 I could certainly feel that. I, I yeah. haven't discussed that very often on the show, but I can feel where your life goes to hell, yes. Well, r really quickly, though, I mean, given that Arnold gets there, there's this room waiting for him. It seems like the room was pretty obviously bugged. Just because they tore it apart and didn't find a bug doesn't mean the bug wasn't there. 
Yeah, so, that's what I'm thinking too. That, that yeah. uh, obviously the there was some sort of a bugging device, some sort of monitoring setup, and the information was being passed on to the media. It was also being passed on to other people. Apparently, one of the, th- the things, and, and Gene kind of alluded to this, Fred Lee Christman, one of the two players in this little drama, years later. Jim Garrison, during his investigation of the John Kennedy assassination, subpoenaed Fred Lee Christman, took him, had him come to Dallas to be interviewed. Uh, this was based on the idea that Christman was one of the seven tramps that was photographed in Dealey Plaza. This was never confirmed, but Christman was just one of these really shadowy characters that kind of moved in and out of certain circles. Now, he also and, had a talk show, as I recall, right, Kirk? Yeah, yeah, he did. And uh, Keel at one point reported on this, and uh, I guess Christman's life was threatened a number of times when he was doing this this talk show. I think that was in, that may have been in Tacoma. And uh, supposedly it was simply because Christman was a rather abrasive character when he did this this on-the-air show. You know, he just kind of pissed a lot of people off, pretty much. But then again, who knows? But there was there were so many so many red herrings about this guy. At one point, there was a story that he had been seen boarding a military transport heading for Alaska. That he had been a, a fighter pilot in Korea during the Korean conflict. And none of these stories, nobody can really get a get a strong handle on this. And of course, the guy's dead now. You know, but it was just he. There was the also the idea that he was a uh, an agent for the CIA. No. Something, something was clearly afoot because the FBI did a thorough investigation of this. They interviewed Harold, uh, Harold Dahl and Fred Chrisman, and the field agent at the time was not impressed at all with the story these two guys told, which essentially was that, well, yeah, we kind of lied, uh, but we basically told Palmer and Arnold what they wanted to hear, you know, yada, yada, yada. Uh, it, was just, it was just really flaky. Uh, quick, quick, quick question here, because this whole idea of, uh, you know, Arnold flies into uh, into this town and, and, and uh, you know, there's a room waiting for him. It sounds like the room was bugged. I mean, this is going on yeah. like in 1947, right? I mean, 19, exactly. All right. So there's kind of a, a layer underneath of this that suggests that, I mean, just having read this account in your book, Kurt, I mean, it almost sounds like. Arnold being one of the first people to go public with seeing uh, a major UFO situation. It's almost as if he was being set up to be taken down or discredited. Um, uh, yeah, I, he was He was being set up, and I'm not sure it was to be discredited. I think he was being used to stir the pot. I think this was a scenario that somebody, somebody cooked up, and Arnold was a, a convenient way to... Put certain information out. I think. I think there was maybe. Maybe there was uh, since the, the CIA was kind of in its infancy back in those days. I think right. maybe they decided that the whole flying saucer phenomenon was a good smokescreen for other activities, and that it was at the time. I think they were actually trying to encourage the idea that we were dealing with aliens and spaceships. And when Arnold went public with his uh, sighting in Smith. A week or so later, went public, followed by a whole spate of airline pilots and various other witnesses from all all calling the calls of life. It just seemed. I think it was just too. This was just something that they couldn't let go go of. It was just something that was too convenient, too right there. It's like okay, we can take this and we can use it. We can turn this to our own ends. And Arnold, being in the in the middle of all of this, and 
I think because he had published uh, at the time, I don't think his book had come out, but well, actually I know it hadn't come out because he, he put all the information about the Tacoma event in his book later, but his article had come out in Fate Magazine and he had filed an official report with the Air Force. Uh, I believe he was set up, I think. Kurt, the possibility with all this that maybe what he originally saw was a test of secret weapons, that could be one possibility. But I think I one think thing it. you haven't expanded on yet is how you happened to get involved in researching this. Well, it was just it was one of those things that having read read the book and read all of the, the information that he put in there about what happened to the comedy, it was just, it was, I mean, back then, there was no such thing as the X-Files, you know, obviously, but it was just one of those really bizarre stories. It was this amazing little drama that had very scary undertones. And I got really interested in this, and I, I was probably a junior reporter back in those days, and uh, I decided to try to track down Ken Arnold and talk to him, see if I could, could get him to open up a little bit more about this and talk about anything else that may have happened. And I remember I, I spoke with you about Arnold's whereabouts. I believe you were among a number of people that thought maybe he had packed his family up and moved them to Australia. That Literally. information came to us from Mosley, who knew him. Yeah, because I mean, Arnold hadn't hadn't spoken with anybody in years. I mean, he was just really disgusted with the media, disgusted with everything having to do with UFOs, and he had kind of completely withdrawn. And I, I talked around to a number of different people, and I was getting mixed stories, mixed signals about Arnold's whereabouts, whether he was even alive or not. And then one day I thought, all right, let's try something different, and I picked up the telephone and called directory assistance. He asked for Kenneth Arnold and found out he was still living in his old state of Iowa. And uh, I got a number and I called him and he picked the phone right up. And I identified myself and told him that I was a reporter and that I'd be you know, a freelance writer at the time and I was interested in talking to him about all this. And he, he didn't say anything for a second and then he said, why should I talk to you? And he said to me, he said, the local press has been after me for years. And he said, I won't talk to them. He said, I'm just not going to talk to anybody about this. And I said, well, I said, you know, for one thing, I said, I've read your book. And I said, it's really interesting. And he, just, he was very surprised. He said, you actually read it? I said, yeah. And uh, then we, we talked aircraft. I explained to him that I had been in the Air Force and I was a crew chief on fighter aircraft. And that pretty much won him over because he was a pilot and we just... BS'd on, on the phone for five or Okay, so this was pilot aircraft. talk. We'll have more pilot talk. Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest on all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Hi, this is Bud Hopkins, and you're listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg, David Jedney, and I completely, enthusiastically endorse this program. It's an absolutely great program with an opportunity to stretch out and talk. 
<laughs> so we'll, we'll call it crew chief to pilot talk. Kurt Sudley, who's also author of UFO Mysteries, a reporter seeks the truth for Llewellyn. You've got some other books out there that we might have our listeners check out before they sell out. Strange Encounters, that was the first one, 1996, I believe, that came out. Okay. And uh, that's it, just those two. And uh, one, well, actually a couple that are in the works, but they're non-14, so. So anyway, back to Kenneth Arnold. You're the crew chief, he's the pilot, you're talking shop, what happens? Well, he, he just wormed to me, and uh, suddenly he starts talking about what happened, uh, the, the original sighting. The, the events in Tacoma, and then he, he kind of went on for a bit, and then he stopped and he said, but he said, have you read the book? He said, you already have all of this. And he said, uh, he said, trust me, he said, the quotes in the book are accurate because he said, at the time, he said, I own one of the very early portable reel-to-reel tape recorders, and he said, I took that with me to Tacoma. And he said, I recorded everything. We just BSed for a while on the phone, and I'll tell you what, the impression that I got from Arnold at the time was that this was a very, very nice man. I mean, I had heard all of these horror stories about how he was just he was just a rat. He was just a guy that you didn't want to even attempt to approach because he was just bitter, he was nasty, he was all of these things. He was none of that. He was he was a perfect gentleman on the phone and sometimes when you, you first talk to somebody and you first meet them you develop an instant rapport with an individual. That's exactly how I felt about this guy. He's the kind of guy that I would have wanted to, to pal around with. And it was just I just thought he was pretty remarkable. And uh I know after the I I put together this short piece and I think it ran in Saga's UFO report. A couple of years later he, he kind of well, I don't think it was in well, maybe a year later there was a big UFO convention and somebody must have gotten a hold of him after the story came out and I guess at that point when he realized that nobody in the in in the UFO field was ready to castrate him verbally or otherwise, that he, he decided to kind of come out of out of hiding and he I guess he was a guest of honor at that convention and uh, that for a number of years brought him back into the public eye. Now, in the book, Kurt, you talk about the whole Maori Island thing, and one of the things that you get into in, in some detail is the idea that the FBI essentially concluded that this whole thing was uh, was a hoax. There's a sort of interesting little story in there about Harold Dahl and his wife. Um, yeah. So is that ultimately your, your conclusion, too, about that, that episode? I know that there's been some interest in recent years about the Maori Island incident or, you know, reported incident. But are you in concurrence with the FBI that it looks like that was all just contrived? Yeah, I, I think I think it was almost entirely. I think the whole thing was just was just a contrivance, largely on the part of Fred Lee Chrisman. I think Dahl was his kind of his dupe, his unwitting accomplice. I know there were there were some other weird things that happened too. At one point Dahl's son disappeared in the I guess in the weeks or months following this whole incident. And they, there was talk that he had been kidnapped, and there was talk that he had turned up in in another state with amnesia, couldn't remember anything. And I guess he had simply, he was just, I guess the boy was just kind of fed up and like a lot of young, the young kids will do. He just ran away for a time. You know, but I, as you talk about this, Kurt, something occurs to me. You remember the classic book, The Report on UFOs by the late Captain Edward Ruppel? Correct. Okay. He was one of the Project Blue Book heads. And... He mentioned in the first part of the book, there was actually a second version where he basically dismissed the UFO evidence completely. The first one, he seemed to be yeah. on the fence, but very much in favor of it. And according to Major yeah. Kehoe, who knew him at the time, Kehoe said he had been pressured by the government to be more skeptical. Okay, one section of the book, he talks about 
Maury Island, he references the person as being the major guilty party as the Chicago publisher. What he means by the Chicago publisher, of course, was one of the two publishers of Fate magazine. One, of course, was Kurt Fuller, and the other, of course, was Ray Palmer. So he was accusing Ray Palmer of fabricating a case that in the end resulted in the deaths of people, basically saying this guy is somehow responsible for being a murderer. You know, it can be negligence, it could be whatever. He was charging him with a crime. All right, let me ask you something. Now, yeah. I, I had never met Ray Palmer, but I believe you had, correct? Yes. Yeah, I re- met him once. I talked to him on the phone for a number of years. For our listeners' sake, I've mentioned Ray Palmer before. He was a pioneer UFO researcher. He and Kurt Fuller founded Fate magazine in the 1940s. Palmer was editor of Amazing Stories, a science fiction magazine. It was like the classic science fiction magazine of the 30s and 40s. He was editor but he brought in a guy named Richard Shaver, who wrote this book about the Deros and Tiros, the underground people. And Palmer said, it's true. And of course, (laughs) people in science fiction didn't want to hear this kind of crap. But he also talked about UFOs, and eventually he founded Fate magazine, pulled away from Fuller and founded his own magazine publishing empire, or whatever you want to call it, called Search Magazine and Flying Saucers Magazine. And the specific response to what was said in this book from Edward Ruppelt was an issue of flying saucers. And we had other involvements with Palmer, too. You know, I talked to him over the years on the phone. Well, we had our little (laughs) disagreements with Richard Hall at NICAP. And NICAP looked at me and said, you're not welcome here. First person we called, other than Jim Mosley, was Ray Palmer. What was your personal feeling about Palmer? Was, and again, I never met the man. I never even talked to him. Was he was he capable of fabricating the hoax on his own? Or do you think he could have been duped? Otto Bender, famous science fiction writer and agent, was a very close friend of Ray Palmer. I met him during that period of time. This is when... I was interested in writing science fiction, as you were. We never connected in that. We never connected in writing a factual book either, except as an initial chapter. But I talked to him. He said Palmer would do things just as an intellectual exercise, just having fun. Don't take it seriously. That was his reaction to it. He didn't believe Palmer at all. I talked to Palmer. He struck me as a guy who was perfectly serious about all this. And I think Palmer suffered quite a bit because of that. He was not rolling in money. He had a very beautiful home in Wisconsin, but I assure you, he was not rolling in money. All right. That that having been said, that kind of clarifies something for me, or at least I think it does. When Arnold received his letter from Freddie Christman, the whole scenario about the the harbor patrol boat which they supposedly had it was i guess it was basically just a junk ferry it really wasn't a harbor patrol boat but the, and the the donut shaped ufos and the lava or the flag falling on the boat and on the, and the on the water on the nearby land and then of course arnold went in contact i'm sorry palmer went in contact with ken arnold based on the strength of what you just told me it, it sounds to me like they would have been kind of keeping a close eye on Palmer, and he would have been the perfect first-line patsy in a situation like this. Send him a letter. Palmer's going to believe it. He's going to suck this up. And, of course, having just been in touch with, with Arnold, he's going to get a hold of Arnold and say, hey, look, you know, I'll, I'll pay for you to fly out there and check into this. You know, everything, all the expenses paid. 
you know, all I want is some sort of a, a story from my magazine. And of course, Arnold goes out there. And uh, Dave, I think you're right. I think the when he landed at the airport and he made the phone call into the city, found out everything was booked. And, but there was one room in the biggest, most expensive hotel in the city reserved in his name. The whole thing was set up. There was, the bugging devices were in place. He got in there and everything got all screwed up. The point of it, who knows? I mean, back in those days, and with when you're dealing with the intelligence and counterintelligence communities, and, and over the years I've had some occasion to entertain people like this, it's so nebulous. You just don't know what what the the end game really is. Yeah. But obviously somebody wanted to make use of, of uh, Arnold's notoriety at the time. Palmer was, was involved in all this, probably not knowingly, but he was just part of the whole process that somebody manipulated. And again, what, what the end result was intended to be, other than maybe to further perpetuate the idea that we're dealing with aliens and spacecraft. Well, I kind of think, Kurt, don't you, that there was a lot of military-related activity in those years that may have involved secret weapons or things yeah. that we reverse engineered not from aliens but from the Germans. Oh yeah. Yeah, we I mean we were reverse engineering an awful lot of equipment and, and aircraft. And I, I mentioned this in, in the book in, in UFO Mysteries that in nineteen forty seven there was there was all kinds of new aviation technology being tested. The Navy was testing the, the so called flying flapjack, which was a uh, uh, actually a recip powered disc-shaped aircraft. The Air Force was involved with the early prototypes of the flying wing, which ultimately became the B-2 stealth bomber that we had today. There were a number of other types of aircraft. There was a lot of inter-service rivalry. Of course, that could also tie in with the so-called crash at Roswell, New Mexico. It's very possible. And I know there are guys out there that are not going to believe this. If you got Stan Friedman out there, he's going to deny this vehemently. But it's very possible that there was some sort of a test craft that was being flown. It simply crashed on a stormy night in, in uh, July of 1947, somewhere in New Mexico. And... Uh, the whole idea of a of a crashed spacecraft could have been part of a cover. You know, and the way they did it, too, was curious also, Kurt, where they first announced it as a crashed spacecraft and then immediately say, no, 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 it's a balloon. Yeah. Are they that stupid? Gene, that's actually very smart. Well, you're the military you're, expert, my friend. Well, you're, you're kind of setting up a double cover that way. I mean, you're, you're kind of expanding the idea of the cover. I mean, yeah, first you, you say, okay, We've got pieces of a flying disc, and it goes out nationally. And then they do the, the announcement about how, oh, so sorry, this didn't really happen. Uh, we were mistaken. There was a, it was a, a balloon. Of course, the public immediately becomes very skeptical, and they go, they go right back to the idea of, okay, these guys are lying to us. It probably really was a spaceship. So it doesn't matter what really happened there. And that's what the public's going to believe. You know, well, at that point, everything, I mean, the, you know, people all over the country are reporting having seen flying saucers, flying disks. And when military announces they've got one and backs up and says, no, we don't have it, it was a big mistake, don't believe anything you read before, anything you heard on the radio before, then no, yeah, everybody's going to say, oh, sure, right, yeah, these guys are the military, they're lying to us, it really was a spaceship. And the thing that would also be very interesting about this is the fact that you now segue to 25 years later, whatever, 30 years later, and people are remembering or trying to remember what happened to them back in 1947. Now we're in the 1970s. 
when MJ-12 came out in the 80s, but all the initial revelations with Bill Moore and Stanton Friedman and Kevin Randall, these people are remembering something that has been distorted by 30 years of space between now and then. And you wonder, I could wonder this very seriously all day long that maybe Roswell may have in part been that except for one thing that still bothers me and I can't reconcile it and I want to ask you about it but we have another hour of the show to go we're talking to Kurt Southerly who's my good buddy and ladies and gentlemen this is one of the times where I call this a personal indulgence Kurt and I spent many hours just talking together and now I've got him on the phone with David and we've simply doing what I did with Kurt 30 years ago and David's now joining us just brainstorming that's it what what were you going to ask was this about jesse marcel jr absolutely not but you'll find out on the other side of the paracast (laughs) welcome back to the paracast with gene steinberg and david my friend kurt southerly joining us this week he's author of a couple of books including ufo mysteries a reporter seeks the truth it's a great book but there are a couple of pictures that you don't want to see (laughs) in that book and that's how it goes okay we go back to Roswell was Roswell a secret military experiment of some kind it could have been done by one agency and remember the Air Force and the Army weren't really talking to each other they didn't have Dick Cheney then to you know keep the services together or ombudsman or something they didn't talk to each other so sometimes you know one agency would know something the other wouldn't okay all well and good well the Air Force had only actually separated from the Army that year that's right so, okay, because they want to carve out their own existence, Kurt. But think of this. Yep. And David thought I was going to ask a question about Dr. Jesse Marcel Jr., who handled mm-hmm. this material that may have been part of the Roswell wreckage. But I have a larger question here, and that is Lieutenant Colonel Philip Corso. Now, I'm really on the fence about this guy. I mean, we understand that the book was heavily edited. And we understand that William Burns, professional mystery writer, takes the book and it reads like Pulp Fiction a little bit. And that's fine. You know, he needs to make the book accessible to the public. Major Kehoe did the same thing for his books. He made him read like Pulp Fiction. Sure. And that's fine. People read the book. They enjoy the book. But we go back to this piece of information here. Colonel Corso has no motive He's certainly known as a military maverick, somebody who doesn't always follow the conventional wisdom. He's also a war hero. He's also highly respected. So he's not going to lie. Why is he going to lie? Make his family rich in his final years? So what is it that he handled? What did General Trudeau give to Philip Corso to have private industry reverse engineer in the 1960s? What's going on here? That's the thing I still worry about. Maybe it was a secret aircraft test, but then we have Corso. All right. Let's let's say that even part of what Corso put on his book and in his statements prior to his death was true, that, that the government really has been covering a lot of things up, that we're dealing with aliens and spacecraft and reverse-engineered technology and, and on and on and on. My, my inclination about all of this is that as far as the government's concerned, If they thought this guy was going to go public with something that was real, they would have shut him up initially. He would have never been able to open his mouth and utter the initial statements that he made and and even go on to put together the draft of the book, which, as you said, was 
heavily rewritten. It just it just wouldn't have happened. They would have clamped down on this guy so hard. He, he would have had an accident. So I don't really think that there's a lot of truth to what Corsa have put out there. Okay, so you feel I, I even years later, Kurt, that the military, rather than just let the guy be dismissed as another crank who believes in UFOs, they would take some sort of overt action to stop Yeah, I don't think the military would have taken any kind of action. I think the intelligence community would have taken action. Okay. Uh, because they're, they're, I mean, you're, you're dealing with a bunch of very paranoid people. And uh, the idea that somebody out there could put something out in print or make start making public statements about something that they've been trying to cover up for the last, you know, 40 or 50 years. There, there's always going to be some somebody in the old guard that's going to say, uh, that ain't going to happen. Shut this guy up. It just, I don't know. I just don't see that, uh, that Corso would have been allowed to, to speak. I mean, yeah, he, he kind of does come across as a crank, but that's not necessarily going to be enough to satisfy some of the people who, quote, unquote, are really in the know. Okay, but if they are, why would he do it at all? He knows the way things are. Or maybe he well, figured, I have a fatal disease. What can you do to me? Well, I'm going to die next year. That's Screw what everybody you. was assuming, that, yeah, he he decided to go public because he was dying, and um, he really had nothing to lose. I mean, you know, it, it's, I don't know, Gene, it's, it's possible that what he said is true, that some part of it is true, but... My gut instinct is that no, it's not. I don't know. I, it, it's one of these things that you know you can kind of kick back and forth forever. But it's just like just like Roswell itself. There's nothing really to get a hold of. There's nothing really to 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 grasp and and look at. There's no paper trail. There's no nothing. And of course, we have the other thing too, which is, as David mentioned before we did our hourly break. Dr. Jesse Marcel Jr., he's a straight-ahead kind of guy. He remembers at age 11 or thereabouts, he handled this memory metal or whatever we want to call it. Yeah. It supposedly was part of this crash. Yeah. Uh, once again, you're dealing with a situation where all of the principal players are dead. Now, Marcel, at the time that he, he started talking about this, I'm really talking about it, he was still alive. But I remember talking to Kevin Randall about about some of the interviews that he and Friedman and some of the other people that were active in, in the Roswell investigation conducted. And one one little thing kind of came came out of all of these conversations with Kevin and again with with Stan briefly was that some of these people were being paid. Now I made I remember I joked with Kevin about this. We were actually sitting in a convention, the dining room of a convention uh, hall one day, and some years back, and I told him I said. You pay me, and I'll tell you a story too. You know, I don't know that these guys were making this up. Maybe memory's a tricky thing too. Maybe after you you've lived with something for so many years, you begin to believe it. You know, if you wow. you, you think back, I mean, I, I remember one of the things that uh, when I was researching the information for UFO mysteries, uh, and I can give you a specific example. When I was in my teens, I think it was fifteen, yeah, about fifteen years old. Uh, I was with a friend of mine. We were carrying a couple of crates of jackrabbits into the fields north of our hometown of Fredericksburg in, here in Pennsylvania. The, the jackrabbits had been purchased by my buddy's father's rod and gun club, and they were going to release these in Pennsylvania and hope they would propagate and create a new form of wild game. So we had like two or three of these big crates of these rabbits, and we lugged them out into the countryside, released them, and it was a couple of weeks before Christmas. It was in December, and we were talking about, you know, what we're going to do on our holiday vacation. You know, what we're hoping to get for Christmas in the way of presents. 
and it was snowing. It had been snowing. We were going out lightly, and then started to really snow intensely. And you know, you, if you've ever been out in the snowfall when you're walking along, snow has a way of deadening sound. You know, you, you, you kind of get this faint swish of heavy snowfall, but nothing else. It just it just creates this weird sound blanket. And this is what we're experiencing as we're walking south along this country road back toward Fredericksburg. And out of this heavy snowfall come these two red lights, brilliant red lights that flew silently overhead. And these had to be fairly low because because of the field of visibility, which was no more than a couple hundred feet. So these things went right overhead, making absolutely no sound at all, and disappeared to the north toward the Appalachian Mountains. I remember we looked at each other, and we wasted no time dragging those crates back to his dad's place, his parents' place. And, of course, we babbled this story, and they laughed at us. And later, when I got home, I babbled this story out to my parents. And they laughed at me, too. And, they were, and there was a small airport. This airport still is there. It's called Farmer's Pride Airport. And they might, I think my mom at the time said, well, maybe it was an airplane from the airport. And I said, they wouldn't be flying in this kind of weather. And I said, there was no sound, nothing, no engine sound. Anyway, years later, many years later, I'm writing the book, and I remembered this. Well, I sat at the, at the word processor for probably an hour, actually trying to decide whether this really happened. You know, I, I remembered it clearly, but yet there was this nagging doubt that maybe I, maybe I was, my mind was making the whole story up. So finally, I had I called up Elmer Weaver, Benny, we, we called him, my buddy, the guy that I was with. And I said, you remember when we were kids and we took the jackrabbits out in the field? And he said, yeah. I said, did anything really strange happen that night? And he says, you mean the red lights? And I, I, I almost breathed a sigh of relief. And, you know, just like, oh, thank God, I, I didn't I didn't miss, this is not a false memory. This is not something that my imagination conjured. This really happened. And we joked about it on the phone for a minute or two about how we never could figure out what this was. And, of course, then the conversation was over. But after 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 years, you start to wonder about, about your memory. And you can, your memory can fabricate things. And maybe, in, maybe when you're dealing with something like Roswell, which has been part of your life, you start to your mind starts to fabricate events. It, it, who knows? I mean, it's it's very possible that they're that these people are actually remembering something correctly. But then again, maybe they're maybe they're filling in blanks that you know. I don't know. <laughs> well, uh, here's the thing about that: having personally had some pretty significant paranormal experiences. At around the same age that Jesse Marcel Jr. was when this uh, this uh, incident supposedly happened, when the father came in with the material late at night and woke him up and said, you need to see this stuff. I, I can tell you that there are lots of things about my childhood I, I have sort of hazy memories of. And some things I, I definitely stand out clearer than others, but... When you have something that anomalous, and just like you were describing these two red lights, Kurt, and I'm glad you brought them up because I was going to ask you about those. Um, when when you have something like that happen, and now you're describing two red lights and moving overhead silently, which you know is kind of an issue, it's a problem. Even if it were a blimp of some sort, you'd still hear the whine of a motor. You'd still hear something. When Jesse Marcel Jr. describes what happened to him, Personally, and I think my BS detector is pretty good, uh, I, I buy a story. I buy a story because uh, his story has been remarkably consistent. 
for as long as he's been talking about it. A, B, the man outside of you know the reputation. Some would say, well, he was trying to protect his father's reputation, and I think to myself, well, Jesse Marcel Jr. is not a young chicken. I mean, the guy is is, is, is like seventy years old. He's in his, certainly in his seventies, and seems to me to be the kind of person who would just not be in a position to make something like that up for for any reason. And he doesn't he doesn't pretend to draw any conclusions about it. He just sort of recounts what happened that night. I I understand what you're saying about how the mind can fill certain things in. I I don't get the sense personally that this is what Jesse Marcel Jr. is is recounting. That, that this is something that somehow his brain is filled in over time. I think he's describing something that genuinely happened to him and that stands out in his mind in the way that such a thing would stand out in the mind of an 11-year-old boy who had his father come in the middle of the night, wake him up, and say, you need to see this stuff, like, right now. It's going to change the world. (laughs) Maybe we're trying to change the world one person at a time on the Paracast. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and David. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Hey there, neighbors. Today I have a very special free promotion. The manufacturer is giving our listeners a free full month supply of beta prostate to all new customers. You know, guys, your prostate can affect your quality of life. And studies show that prostate problems affect a larger majority of men. Listen, guys, your prostate can affect your urine flow and stream, and it might even affect intimacy. Every man over 30 should visit the doctor for a checkup and take what I take, beta prostate. It's so powerful, you have to take 100 saw metal capsules in order to get the same natural plant sterols as one beta prostate. This all-natural supplement targets the prostate and provides it with nutrients that help support proper prostate function. Call now because all new customers get beta prostate free by calling 1-800-625-5535. Just pay for the shipping and handling. The bottle is free. Once again, call right now, 1-800-625-5535, 1-800-625-5535. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. We have Kurt Southerly, author of many magazine articles and also among his works, UFO Mysteries, written about eight years ago. And if they don't have it at Amazon, scream and yell or yell at his publisher, Llewellyn, to reprint the book. 
No, not because, and also tell them to take my picture out. Yeah. I want Kurt to sell more books. It's it's two pictures, and you know our our viewer, our listeners will will buy the book just for those pictures, Gene. And there, now, and don't forget there was Rick Hilbert in that photo, and, and uh, Bob Easley was in that as well. And Hilbert was the only one who looked authentic because he's wearing a suit. The rest of us were wearing bell bottoms. Somebody was wearing plaid. <laughs> yeah. Well, the rest Somebody. of us were just a couple of crazed people. Rick Hilberg was a normal married man with children. The rest of us were all single guys. Well, Car- Carol Hilberg looked kind of cute, but now I can't begin to even tell you that story. Oh well, no, I, I'm going to get that one offline. Now, now here's the thing, though. Um, <laughs> chapter four. No, oh, no, guys, guys, let's let's get back on topic. Back on topic. Folks. No, no, no. This is more fun. Oh, no, Go no. Ahead. Come on, come on. Chapter four: The Invasion of Boshkung Lake. Now. Here's the thing about that, uh, Kurt. You described this as starting in, in, in November of 1973, this whole situation. And Rough it. Okay. So I've talked about on the show before an episode that happened to me in uh, in mid-New, in middle of New Jersey, where I was growing up in Somerset. Joyzy? In Joyzy. Uh, around 73, um, I had a major, major sighting that I've talked about on the show of a UFO that... I followed our car, followed us home, and hovered over my house. It was a crazy thing. But could you fill in our, our listeners about this situation? I, and I hope I'm pronouncing it right. Boshkung Lake? Yeah, Boshkung Lake. So what was going on there? It was just a really weird situation where you had residents around the, this, this lake, literally called Boshkung Lake. It was a, a kind of a lakeside community. And over a period of a number of weeks... UFOs used to use the frozen lake surface, this was in the middle of the winter, as basically use it as a UFO parking lot. They would come in after dark, and they would come in from all directions, and they would fly in, when, like as one of the witnesses at the time said, it kind of a, a jerky motion. And at times it almost seemed like if these things really had engines, they were having engine problems. But they would kind of come in and jerk to a landing, and, and they would, like in the movie Close Encounters, where the aliens were being signaled with lights and there was there was a whole light show and sound show these objects had like a antennae on them or something that appeared to be like antennae and there were, were lights on the objects and they would it looked like the, to the witnesses like they were communicating by flashing lights back and forth and i remember and i think i had this in the book uh, a number of years later back in late in, in the 70s i was living in a summer cottage in uh, lebanon county and i lived there for 10 years and one night, there was, at the time, a lot of people were using Citizens Band radio, and there was bleed over on my television set from a passing CD, and I heard the phrase UFO. And I'm like, whoa. A couple minutes later, I get a phone call from some one of the night reporters at the Daily News where I uh, was working part-time. And he said, hey, he said, we're getting reports of unidentified flying objects. And that was October of 1977, I believe. In any case, one of the sightings kind of wrapped back to Boshkung Lake because it, it was a, a sighting that I had. I was out in an area called Monroe Valley, which at the time was a very rural, very picturesque, beautiful little valley, which is now getting developed. And it was between what we call the Low Mountain and the, the main portion of the Blue Mountain, which is part of the Appalachian chain. And as I'm driving around in that area, because there have been reports of objects back there, I, I see this thing. I'm sorry, I, I think I'm, I'm actually misremembering this. It's not something that I saw. This is something that a witness called into me. 
and he said he was back there, and it's how long it's been since I read the book. He's talking about this this object that moved jerkily through the sky and passed kind of right in front of his vehicle. And then later I did see something which was more of a marsh gas type of thing. Uh, it was like a, like a ghost-like type of phenomenon that appeared and disappeared and just gave me the, the willies and I kind of got out of there. <laughs> but the whole Boston Lake thing was just bizarre because it was kind of, it's kind of like a standalone in, in the, the whole UFO mystery. The objects were unlike anything that had been, that were, normally seen. They weren't discs, they weren't cigars, they weren't triangles, which we're seeing a lot of today. They were just odd-shaped craft that were flashed lights, and they moved very jerkily for the most part. And this went on for quite a few weeks. At one point, they, they, they called the, uh, the the local constabulatory, and, and the, the cop showed up, and and uh, they saw a couple of lights in the distance, but they kind of, you know, uh, poo-pooed the whole thing, and, and uh, it seemed like every time the authorities would show up, the objects would disappear or just fly mm. away. But yeah, it's just a just bizarre little scenario, and it, it's obviously it's a short chapter in the book. It's one of those things that just kind of sticks in your mind, and it's like, well, what really was going on here? It kind of ties in with the whole idea of the UFO phenomenon being part of something more than extraterrestrials. I want to get back to something quickly we talked about earlier in the show. Dave, you mentioned about the, the idea of are we dealing with a number of different components in the UFO phenomenon? Are we dealing maybe with extraterrestrials, maybe also with other dimensionals, maybe with something else? I think that's a safe bet because there, you can take isolated incidents and, and look at it. You can take one episode here, one episode there, and, and look at it and say, this sounds like it could have been a real ET event. And maybe Roswell was something like it. I don't know. But then there are other events that are just so bizarre, so outlandish, where you have UFOs tied in with weird, strange creature activity with all kinds of other things where you have, you might have in a, in a, in a neighborhood, UFOs, creatures, various type of psychic phenomena, poltergeist activity. This smacks of something entirely different. You know, you almost have to look at it case by case, but you can't just throw a blanket over the whole thing and say it's all ETH or it's all extra dimensional or other dimensional or whatever. You know, yeah. you really have to have to look at look at each episode separately. And sometimes you can tie things together. Sometimes you can't. I think that that's part of the big problem with people who research the field, and in, in that they really try to specialize on a particular branch of thought or a particular theory, and I think that the problem here is that we have a lot of bleed-over and cross-talk in this stuff. And, you know, once you, you start talking about the ability, like, I, like I've intimated and I've said it during this show, uh, you, you talk about craft that can potentially you know, travel the kinds of distances that we don't... At, at our current state of technological evolution, we have no concept, really truly no concept of how this stuff likely works. You know, we think about trying to, you know, we have the Einstein problem of trying to move mass at a speed getting close to light, and it just seems like the problem's insurmountable. It's just, it's not. Well, no, that's even that idea, the idea of the whole thing being insurmountable, that's changing. The thinking about that's changing. If you're talking about classic physics, you know, like you said, Einstein, the notion that, you know, the closer you go, you're Right. You approach the speed of, of light. I mean, you're building up mass, you're building up energy, what they call tall. And, you know, you reach a point where you simply can't exceed the speed of light. Just so much mass build up, so much. Sure, sure, absolutely. Now, if, 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 if you're going to go to quantum mechanics, though. Right. Right. So right. the, the problem exactly there. where I was going. No, I, and, I, and I know that. I'm, I'm, I'm fully aware of and familiar with a lot of that research. But the problem there 
is that we're talking about some we're at such uh, uh, an early point in trying to understand that we, we have precious little instrumentation that can deal with this we have absolutely no no materials technology that can even vaguely deal with this our, our understanding of our, not our understanding of our ability to manipulate energy I mean we're, we're, we're a planet that is still primarily based on an energy source that is stored solar energy in you know decayed uh, uh, organic matter i mean we we are we are just uh, this is the thing where as uh, i said it on the show before as a technologist i'm I'm fully aware of uh, our own limitations and so and you're also you're also aware of the enormous advance just in thinking just in the last 10 years and so sure quantum mechanics goes i mean it's i think i think what we're on the verge of Assuming we don't melt down our planet or do you know, have some other scenario in which the human race kind of essentially throws itself back into the uh, a disruption, yeah, yeah, uh, I think if we can continue for another twenty or thirty or fifty years, the fossil fuels are definitely going to be a thing of the past, and I think we're going to be dealing with energy sources that are going to be radically different, uh, you know, zero point fields, uh, whatever. But what I was going to say about quantum mechanics is when you look at a large part of the UFO phenomenon, it almost does, like, as Arthur Clarke would have said, you know, technology is sufficiently advanced, it's going to appear to be like magic. And that's almost what it seems like. It seems like we're dealing with something magical. But at the subatomic level, everything functions differently. You know, classical physics doesn't function in a normal sense at the subatomic level. I mean, when you can you have... have quantum mechanic or quantum physicist saying okay we can in an experiment we can take a, a photon of energy a, a point of light and cause it to simultaneously go through three openings I mean I remember reading an experiment about just how they how they monitor something like this I have no idea but basically it was saying the, the photon didn't split apart it remained a, a whole a single object but it went through three openings simultaneously right and the subatomic level it, that can happen, but in the real world, that's magic. No, I totally understand what you're saying, but this is, you know, in, the, in the world of computing technology, for about eight to ten years, we've been hearing about the idea of a quantum computing device, and right. it's essentially mental masturbation right now. It, it's, you can talk about this stuff all day long, but you know we're at a point where Moore's law has broken down now. Uh, we're not seeing the advances in computing speed and power that we had been accustomed to. I mean, that whole equation has essentially fallen apart. Um, well, with, you, with all, with well, but but again, but here I, I may mean, have to emphasize this with with you know all, anybody who has any kind of computing technology, mobile technology, knows about the huge issues with powering the stuff. As far as you know, battery and energy technologies, there there haven't been huge advances in recent times. Now I understand that in. In the, the evolution of technology, there are these significant shifts that can occur that really redirect yeah. um, uh, the acceleration of things, and, well, and that could, it, you know, that, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, yeah, and, so, and you, as you pointed out correctly, with with computer technology, we're kind of at a plateau right now. Things have kind of, you know, things escalated rapidly for a long period of time, and they were forecasting. Unbelievable advances, as you as you mentioned, about a quantum computer. Things didn't quite work out the way they expected. Things have leveled off, and what that's what that does is that forces thinking in a different direction. That happens all the time in technology. 
Right. And, and, and we're still dealing with electronic computers. We, we still haven't reached the point where we, we've even explored the realm of optical computing cores, which is really truly uh, probably where the next great computing advances lie. Um, I recognize this in a piece I wrote, God, 16, 17 years ago, I wrote a piece about optical computing and what that would potentially mean for the world of computing. And, and even then, that hasn't happened yet. Actually, qualifier, I suspect that optical computing has indeed happened, and it is a classified military technology. In fact, I have strong reasons to think that. But, but, but getting back to this bigger topic here about being able to move um, a, a craft at uh, something faster than the speed of light. I, I, I would love to see that in my lifetime. Realistically, I don't think, I, I think we're a couple of hundred years away from that. I don't think we're near that yet. Um, I, think, I think you're correct. I, I, this is kind of, kind of interesting. My, uh, my dad is 81 years old. And when I was a little boy, long before Gene, before you and I had kind of hooked up for the first time, summertime, you know, I, when I was out of grade school, I'd go to the local library, the bookmobile, when it started coming around, I'd get science fiction and fantasy books, and I'd sit there and I'd read this stuff. And my dad used to get really upset. You know, and he, he, he like, you know, you should be doing something, you know, practical. Don't sit there and launch air and read that, that crap. A couple of years ago, he and I and my sister and brother-in-law were uh, on, we're in the vehicle, we're in his, his car, and we're driving up to Potter County, where he's has a member, uh, he's a member of a hunting camp up there. This is up in the northern tier of Pennsylvania, up in the, in the, the high, the, the high plateau, where there's been a lot of weird things happening over the years, uh, reports of giant birds and a lot of UFO activity. And uh, anyway, we're we're driving up there, and we were talking about some of these things, actually, some of the, the weird phenomenon. And it suddenly dawned on me, my dad, his his attitude about a lot of this had really changed. And then he suddenly starts talking about the space program. And he remember at one point he said, you know, he said, when I was your age, he said, I thought that, you know, by the time I was older, we'd had the giant orbiting space station, the wheel in space. He said, we'd have a colony on the moon. We'd have men on the way to Mars. We'd be exploring the asteroid belt. And I'm listening to this, and I'm, I'm flabbergasted. And I said, I said, when did you get interested in all this stuff? He said, well, I have been for a long time. And he said, he said, I'm watching a lot of this stuff on the Discovery and History Channel and what have you. And it was kind of reinforcing his thinking about all this. And I stopped him. I said, you remember when you used to get on me about reading those books when I was a kid? And he didn't say anything. He just kind of looked at me. You know, he was he was driving, and I was sitting next to him. My sister and brother-in-law were in the back, and. Uh, he, he kind of smirked, and he knew what I was talking about. And I said, "I said those, I said those books were exactly about this. I said they were all these early science fiction stories about exploring the, the solar system." Anyway, this just this all kind of wraps back to what we were just talking about—the idea that any kind of an interstellar drive, uh, superluminal, as they now refer to it, is probably if we see it within the next 150, 200 years, yeah, I think we're going to be lucky. If we see it in our lifetimes, we'll be unbelievably lucky. I don't think it'll happen. Hi, this is Timothy Green Beckley, otherwise known as Mr. UFO, reporting live for the Conspiracy Journal. And we have a special offer to the listeners of the Paracast. Want to receive our publications for free? 
Conspiracy Journal, and Bizarre Bizarre sent to you via snail mail. And all you have to do is email me at MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MRUFO at WebTV.net, and we'll send you two of the most exciting publications. But we do need your actual address because these are physical publications, and you'll enjoy all the latest articles by some of the leading researchers in the field, as well as up-to-date information on the latest book and videos, and it's all for free. Or drop us a line, Mr. UFO at webtv.net. Hi, this is Nick Pope. You're listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietney. We're talking to Kurt Southerly, longtime UFO researcher. And we should add here on the Paracast officially, we do not expect in 40 or 50 years from now, in the middle of a worldwide crisis, Zephyrim Cochran to build warp drive and bring the Vulcans to Earth. It's not going to happen. <laughs> and half your listeners will get that and the other half won't. Um, but I, I would just, I would love to see a serious exploration of the, of the solar system begin. And I, I think the technology is there, and I think with a lot of the private companies that are that are building up, developing, initially they're building suborbital spacecraft, and I think we'll see in the next five or six years some uh, orbital technology. Uh, I think that's going to progress over the next 10 or 15 or 20 years by leaps and bounds to where private industry rather than NASA, rather than the government, is going to get us back out to the moon. Maybe and they're not going to use the lower spitter either, right? Exactly. Well, it's interesting you say that, of course, but that takes us to another subject, back to our original subject, which, of course, is the crazy UFO universe. Ray Palmer said UFOs. He called them flying saucers. Very seldom said UFOs. Flying saucers are here to make us think. Think that, about what? Know. Is that what led us into the early parts of the space program? We looked at that and said, gee, if they can do it, we can do it. That's a good idea. So why aren't we seeing more events if the UFOs are flying saucer here to make us think, seeing more things happen that will encourage us to develop a few things? I think, I think that there's a truth to that. I think the, the whole UFO phenomenon and, and all of the various other type of paranormal events that seem to orbit around the UFO phenomenon, it does make you think. I mean, you... You don't get. I don't think today you get as much of a, of an understanding or a grasp of that because the mass media doesn't focus on it at all anymore. And so you need to. You actually need to be on the internet. You need to to check out certain websites to see the dialogue going back and forth. Now some of it is some of the dialogue out there is just plain BS. But there are some people out there that have taken this to heart and they do some serious thinking about all of this. And no matter what. It doesn't matter what direction their thinking goes in. If if, if they had a had an, an an incident involving UFOs or some other unexplained phenomenon in their life, or if they knew somebody that did, and it gets them thinking or talking about it, that's not a bad thing. I mean, right. and you, it, you you can use that as a catalyst to go into something else. Maybe just like the whole the, the whole Star Trek phenomenon, which we kind of briefly touched on. J.J. Abrams, who just came out with the new Star Trek movie. I mean, he, growing up, these were things that sparked his uh, entrepreneur, his young entrepreneurship, he, his 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 notion of becoming a filmmaker. And I I recently saw a show on uh, I did the uh, 
basically I have cable ads, the, the amplified antennas. I'm getting a lot of these weird little digital channels that are popping up. And at one of these shows, there was a program involving teens who would, there was a teen interviewer who would talk to different people in industry and Hollywood and how they got started. And somebody was interviewing Abrams and the, and the, I forget the name of the two writers, the two guys who wrote the script for Star Trek. And they were expanding on this about how they were influenced by early Star Trek and even by the UFO phenomenon. And yep. these are things that made them think. Yeah, but I think uh, you're, you're, it's, it's a bit of a leap to, um, and, and I've heard other people say this, that you know the, the UFOs are here to awaken us or make us think. And, and I don't know, logically, uh, I think that's, that's stretching. I think that the, the rational human response to such a thing is to be thoughtful and to be questioning, and w which leads to thinking, but to attribute... The, the motivation of those things to to be things that are are there to make us think I think that's very human centric and and uh, I I just think it's a bit of a stretch personally that's just my opinion well I, I think that with anything it doesn't matter if it's if it's unexplained phenomena if it's something more mundane the thunderstorm moving through wreaking havoc in your neighborhood whatever you know whatever the event mm -hmm. it's going to cause people to talk now. 90% of the population, it, that's all it's ever going to be is just talk. But that right. other 10% or maybe less, maybe only 5%, they're going to act on it in some fashion. That thunderstorm that came through and wreaked havoc causes a guy like Joe Bistardi, a man that I've known for a number of years, to suddenly think about, wow, weather's really cool. And the guy goes on to become you know, a weather forecaster and he's now head of AccuWeather. You know, different people are affected by different events in their life, and it. But it's always the the very small percentage of people that actually really act on it, and that's that's human centric too. It, it, it takes a few to focus on something to pursue it, and those people become the leaders in a society, mm -hmm. and everybody else just sort of follows along or just goes through life and kind of blissfully ignorant and, and ignores everything around them. And you know, <laughs> I I remember when when I used to back going back to the to the early days of all of this when when I'd sit and I read the articles that Keel and and uh, Stan Friedman and some of his early stuff and and Jerry and and Lauren and all the rest of them Steiger when they read all these pieces and I'd be sitting and reading them and I'd take a lot of the times that I would find myself going to a nearby restaurant. And I'd sit at the counter and I'd have a couple of these magazines and I'd pop open Saga's UFO Reporter, Argosy, or whatever. And I'd be going through this stuff and I'd be really into it. And then some guy would plop down next to me, a truck driver or something. And he's like, why are you reading that crap? That's all the news. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, speaking of the review points, speaking of all that crap, it's interesting. We kind of stopped there and we didn't go on for various reasons, but we noticed, for example, that the viewpoints of the UFO field seem to move in the keel direction for a number of years, and they've drifted back towards strictly ETH. So where do you think this happened, or does that simply show that Keel's research was, as some of the people said on that show we did a few weeks ago, his research was sloppy, and the conclusions he drew were not really pointed to by the evidence, and maybe we should go back to ETH all over again. What do you think? Well, you know, I think a lot of that happened during that 10-year period where I sort of dropped out. But I remember at the, at the onset of that decade, I started to notice a shift. And maybe that's why I did drop out now that I think about it. I, I, 
I've noticed the shifting away from the idea of ultra-terrestrials or some sort of obscure paranormal phenomena tying into the UFO phenomena. And it didn't really bug me. It didn't, it didn't really create a mindset where I felt compelled to get away from it, but it probably contributed because I just, I just couldn't wrap my mind around the notion that everything that was happening was strictly ETH. There had to be more to it than that, and I still believe that. And I remember, I know Jim Mosley's made his comment a number of times over the years that after all these years of, of writing about it and thinking about it and talking to people about it, he's convinced that this is a phenomenon that is, at its core, is something that the human mind just simply can't grasp, something that we can't handle. Uh, I, some I, components of it we can, but yeah. a lot of it I don't think we can. I think I completely agree with that. I, I'm I'm right I'm right on the page with that statement. If you know we're dealing with something that that we haven't, as a species, matured enough yet to handle, yeah. and then maybe this ties in with the idea that this is something for us to think about. That maybe maybe there is a, a force out there, an intelligence, a phenomenon that is kind of in little ways it sort of nudges us along, gives us a notion here and there, the idea of, of spacecraft visiting here, which maybe causes a few people to think about, you know, maybe we can get some craft up there ourselves and orbit the earth and go out to the moon and do whatever. And now, of course, we're, we're thinking, seriously thinking about time travel. You know, 40, 50 years ago, time travel was an impossibility. Everybody knew that. And now there are physicists out there, researchers, quantum physicists who are saying time travel is a distinct possibility. And of course, that could tie into all of this. Maybe some of what we're, we're seeing and I think there, maybe some of this is, is time-traveling craft. There were a couple of incidents that are related, I think, near the end of UFO mysteries involving objects that sort of, they just sort of seem to phase into, into the reality of the witness. They're, they see this thing kind of phase into existence and then phase out again, almost like they're moving in and out of our frame of reference, moving in and out of our reality. Maybe they're time-traveling. I think Steiger's touched on this a bit. Isn't that, of course, one of the possible explanations for missing or gained time? Now, you probably haven't heard this episode. I don't know how many episodes of the Paracast you've managed to listen to, but there was, was this episode that David appears with a friend where they take the drive from Boston to New York. normally takes like four, four and a half hours in average traffic, and it takes two hours so what happened on the road there other than David suddenly becoming a complete maniac for two hours and driving in a way that not only bypasses yeah. the police no. who see this truck that he was driving and probably arrest him, what really happened to no, well, cause him to speed up? Well, we know that time is, is, is a malleable thing. We know that time is a point of reference for us. Yeah. But um, when you start to bend space-time, uh, you know, if you, if you, if you, what's it, the Kobe Mayashi maneuver? Oh, God. Now, now you got me quoting the Star Trek That's nonsense. That's a no win <laughs> scenario unless you are. No, Captain just change Jack the rules. No, 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 no. The point is to change the rules. And, and I think that ultimately, uh, what we're going to find out, and it could be a hundred years from now, it could be a thousand years from now. Uh, what we're going to find out is that really the way to go to that next level is to not accept the physics where they are, but to, to learn how to change the rules. If you can change the rules 
of gravity, you can counteract it. If you can change the rules of time, you can bend it. And just in terms of our ability to manipulate energy and our ability to, to have instrumentation to give us an extension on our own senses, I just really think, and again, from a technologist's point of view, my God, we've had electricity for, what, just a little over 100 years? I mean, we are we are so early on in the process of learning about this stuff that it gets back to the point Kurt was making before that, uh, you know, very likely, it's very likely that so much of this is is at a place where our brains are not equipped to understand it. We are not as intelligent as we'd like to think we are. That just reminded me of something. Uh, there have been episodes down to the last 30 years or so involving people who had uh, they've been witnesses to a UFO event. They've been immediate percipients where the object landed, affected them. Maybe they were maybe they were taking on board the alleged craft, whatever. But the individual's thinking was changed. His, his awareness actually seemed to have been expanded. Maybe it's possible that the phenomenon can directly influence the mind, cause us to to have even if only temporarily kind of an expanded type of thinking and that can in itself can create breakthroughs i think uh, that's I entirely possible I, I listen based on what we just know about what simple chemicals can do when bonding with certain receptors in our brain just based on that i think it's entirely likely that there is technology that can completely change our perception of things i mean uh, you know, on a real crude level, look what look at how television changes people's perceptions of reality and molds it. Crude Just level indeed. Crude yeah. level indeed. Fate magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. It's not crude to say that we are perceiving reality with Kurt Southerly, and we have only 15, 20 minutes left to spend with him to perceive that reality. Kurt, do you remember Alan Greenfield, our old oh, friend yeah. who's been on the show a couple of times, using the phrase, I am the god of physics and I have changed the rules? <laughs> yeah, he, uh, he was rather fond of that phrase. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... What's your point? He, that he, Alan Greenfield is God and he's uh, changed the rules? Well, no, the point being that we don't know. 
at any point in our lives, whether the rules didn't change, where events that we remembered suddenly are remembered differently because the past changed. Well, you know, as, as you move through life, and we're all old enough now so that, you know, you can you kind of get a sense of this, you become, from year to year, you become a different person. You know, your cells are changing. Your your body cells, your brain cells, everything, you, you know, you, you not only do you look different, but you start to think different. Actually, in some ways, as you get older, you tend to, I think you lose some of that cognitive ability you had when you're younger. It's why my mathematicians... They, their peak years are in their early 20, early to mid 20s, and after that they start to slide, and they're supplanted by somebody else who comes along, some young kid who's smarter than they are. But as you move through life, if you're half intelligent at all, you start to look around and you realize that this is all kind of it almost seems like an illusion in a lot of ways. That you're the reality that you see that you that that wraps around you is something that you've, in a sense, almost created for yourself. And I, and I get this as I get older. I get this feeling fairly often where I feel like if I just could focus a little more, I could actually see through the veil that surrounds us and see what's really out there. That's kind of it is kind of a, a, a scary thought. At the same time, it's kind of an exciting thought because it, it lets you believe that okay, when you know, when as we approach the end of life, it doesn't end. There's something else to go to, but. I don't know. Maybe maybe everything that we're experiencing with the UFO phenomenon is part of something that we've helped create for ourselves. Or maybe it's an external force that's influencing us and allowing us to, to as we were just discussing, to expand our own awareness and to be able to look at things a little differently, kind of look at things in a sidelong way rather than a head-on way. Who knows? I mean, I guess when we're all dead, we'll probably maybe we'll have the answer then. But <laughs> <laughs> Well... Again, to, to emphasize, look at a human's senses and look at the range of reality. There is a huge, huge gap between the two. You know, we, 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 are, we are wrapped with a reality that is mostly impenetrable by our ability to perceive that reality you know the the visual spectrum i mean it's just such a tiny little slice of the electromagnetic spectrum our audible yeah. range i mean you know our our brain helps us get the most out of our relatively limited senses and without instrumentation and technology to augment those senses we we perceive so little that when you know i People say that they, they have a good grasp on reality. My, my, my favorite thing, you know, people who, who have no foundation in physics is, you know, sort of wrap on the, the, the tabletop and they see this solid thing and they say, yep, that's solid. Yeah, well, it's mostly empty space. Go, go get a book and learn something about the but, universe. You know, and it's very true about our limited senses. I mean, you know, we, you know, the visual range is very narrow. And, you know, you look at that... Different animal species, like cats, dogs, cats mm -hmm. especially can see further into the ultraviolet and the infrared ranges. And there are times, and and I have my my neighbor has several cats. My sister has a number of cats, and I watch those cats in particular pace around, and they see things that we don't see. Um, Absolutely, they, they can you know they can be walking around in the, in the living room of my sister's house, and they'll suddenly be looking at something 
you know, up above them and walking around and staring at something wide-eyed. And I'm like, what the hell are they looking at? Mm-hmm. But it, obviously, they see something that we can't perceive. And that that's a good example of how yeah. our view of reality is very narrow, very confined. And again, without the technology, why we just can't get, get past that. Maybe maybe there are races out there that have, you know, kind of gotten past this hurdle to develop the technology that allows them to to travel through through space travel at the uh, subatomic level i don't know you know well maybe you have a, a civilization a species that's been around for 500 million years versus no. the what how long has has have homo sapiens sapiens been around i mean well for a civilization about 10 minutes i guess yeah, not well, it, it, that, even that's up, it, debatable because there, there's the distinct possibility that humanity, the civilization on this planet, has risen and fallen several times, and that we uh, just choose to ignore the evidence of that. Right. I, I strongly feel that that is a very high likelihood of, of being accurate. I, I, I totally think that is that not only is it probable, it's uh, possible. I think it's probable. But again, now let's step back and look at the age of our star. We're a part of a solar, we're part of a, of a galaxy that um, where we don't have a, an old star. You know, you go to different parts of our galaxy where you have much older stars, where I'm well, guessing... Stars on the verge burning out, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Where you've had planets that uh, you have been around for so much longer than the Earth. I think that it's to, to think that somehow humans. Again, I, I don't don't want to be bashing on the good old humans here, but I, I just I think that this idea that somehow we're sort of the pinnacle of evolution. I think it's it's just it's so incredibly human to think that that sense of vanity and ego that believes that. Uh, in my my intuition says to me at least, that that is completely wrong. And, uh, you know, once you once you have a technology that, and, and this actually, let's get back to your book for a minute, because you talk about this interesting idea of UFOs that essentially shift shape, they morph, kind of stuff that we don't have any kind of understanding of. But I think that it's it's another clue, and I think it's an important clue for us to realize that uh, there are technologies so far in advance of anything that we can really grasp at this point. I mean, maybe there are theoretical physicists right on the edge that can perhaps visualize some of this stuff to some degree, but you know, the idea of uh, a craft that can, you know, change its physical size to the to the to the to the point of, you know, from the point of view of of the person watching it, but let's say inside remains the same size or even gets bigger. Well, well, Maybe it's not necessarily changing its shape. Maybe it just appears that way because that's how we perceive it. Correct. Maybe it's, it's moving through the, the visual spectrum at such a pace that that's how we see it, that it right. comes in at one end of the spectrum, moves out at the other in the process. We mm-hmm. perceive it as a shape shift. Correct. Or, you know, maybe it's, it's such that uh, the effect it's having on light is so extreme that what we end up seeing is is not really representative of what the thing is actually going through, and and this again, we got we got to we can get some very esoteric topics here, but I think it really comes back, it comes back to being humble, you know. I'm sorry, Daddy. Yeah. Oh, that's all right. The, the idea of shape shifting UFOs is something that when I when I wrote the book, I really wanted to touch on that at least to a small degree because it's another one of these things that the the UFO community tends to not look at. 
they really don't, anything like that, anything that kind of doesn't fit with their preconceived idea of everything being ETH, they just tend to ignore or push aside. As you said, it's a clue. I mean, what kind of clue exactly? I don't know. We, we don't know. We don't know enough. Mm-hmm. But it's something that needs to be, that, that researchers, if they're going to continue pursuing the UFO phenomenon, they need to be aware of, and they need to include that in their little catalog of what to watch for and what to ask about when they talk to witnesses. Well, you know, everybody ultimately brings their subjective views to this, and I don't think it's possible to have an objective discussion amongst two, more than two human beings. I just don't think it's possible. We're, we're subjective creatures, and this idea of scientific objectivity, I think it's an avatar. I think it's unachievable, ultimately, because human ego comes into play, and you talk about scientists, um, you know, they're worried about they're funding. I mean, you know, you know, yeah. why won't yeah, credible they're... scientists look at this stuff? Well, because they don't want their funding to dry up. That's why it hasn't happened. Well, this is what happened with Ivan Sanderson in his, you know, in the years following his publication of the Abominable Snowman Legend Come to Life. At the at the time he the book came out, I think he was sixty years old at, at that point. A lot of his contemporaries, his peers turned to him and they said you're committing you know professional suicide you know this is not something you should be pursuing you know you you need to get away from this and get back to serious research get back to cataloging real animals and real plant specimens and doing what you've always done best you know forget about this hooey this is all mythology and Ivan of course at that point in his life he was he was he'd been down the whole primrose path of the scientific community for a good number of years and he just basically told him to go pound sand. And this is something that interested him. Well, you know about pounding sand, we are running out of sand pounding time. (laughs) You know, and we're running out of sand. So before we leave the sandbox free of sand, Kurt, you're working on a new book after a few years of not doing it, and maybe we've encouraged you to continue on. Can you tell us what it's going to be about? Oh, it's it's fiction. It's a novel. Sure you want to know about that? Uh, (laughs) Any fact books? Well, there's a, a wildlife natural history book that I'm working in, in what spare moments I have, but the, the novel actually does capitalize to a certain extent on some of the things that I've, you know, experienced and interviewed uh, people about over the years. The, uh, essentially, this is a, a, a world that's kind of a medieval realm where something that doesn't belong there has suddenly intruded into their, into their place. And it's moving through the uh, through the forest, and it's destroying everything in its path. And one of the and you're you're probably familiar with this little business of some of the para creatures, as we used to call them, that, that used to manifest around UFOs, having a stench of sulfur rotten eggs. That's one of the symptoms of this creature in the book. This thing is okay. So basically, this is something that is torn from the headlines, or at least the paranormal headlines. Yeah, kind of. Uh, I mean, it's you know, it incorporates a lot of there's a lot of pure fantasy, but there's a lot of bona fide information that I throw in there. The, the hero is a swordsman, and of course, I'm a swordsman of a, to a certain extent. And so, a lot of the actual sword making technology that I throw in there is real. But I incorporate. I, I, I tried to build a mythology in here, which kind of mirrors some of the mysteries of our own world. This business, like we were just mentioned a while ago, about civilizations rising and falling. And for instance, one of the the, the father to the to the young swordsman, the 
the soldier who's the hero in the story, his father creates a sword for him that's modeled on something that the ancients in their time, a thousand years before, had used as a metallurgy, a, tech, a steel-making technology that had been lost. And he recovers part of this. Hmm, maybe we should and do that in the real world, too. Maybe the Roswell craft is nothing more than time travelers. In any case, we're just about out of time, Kurt. Although it's kind of interesting to see where your creative efforts have gone. And as I said, when you or if you have a second edition of the book, UFO Mysteries, A Reporter Seeks the Truth, we urge you strongly to get rid of two pictures. Lose, <laughs> lose the plates. I, I think I'm going to get a hold of Rick Hilberg and ask him if he has any more pictures like that. that you know, <laughs> you put like, like maybe add another 10 pages of photos. Just Excellent. Be, you know, wearing your plaid pants. Oh, I asked for it. I asked for it. Oh, my God. This is it now. Kurt Southerly, old friend, thanks for joining us this week on the Paracast. You're very welcome. It's been a, a real pleasure. Thank you, Kurt. Excellent. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast. 